Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of After the Final Whistle here on WSOE 89.3 FM or After the Fact on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Friday, September 27th, September coming to an end, and the best time of year, October coming up, NBA season coming, MLB playoffs starting next week, football still going on, and perhaps the greatest and most important week in professional wrestling in 18 years. But this podcast episode today, the NBA, we're weeks away. We're going to start doing some NBA-centric podcast episodes and episodes and shows here on WSOE, taking some inspiration from Zach Lowe's uh, recent awesome, awesome podcast with Kevin Arnovitz on the five most confusing teams in the league. I'm going to take that theme and apply it here today. The five most confusing teams, in my opinion, for this coming season in the NBA. Uh, so I narrowed down my list to five teams. There are more than five teams who I'm pretty confused by, but I think there are five that stand out more than the rest. Uh, two of them from the East, and three of them are from the West. And um, let's start with the first Eastern Conference team. That's going to be none other than the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, I did my off-season recap podcast, as you can check back in the archives here on Apple Podcasts or podcast.com. So this is less a review of their um, off-seasons rather than just looking at them as they are and how they'll be this season. The Sixers are going to be a very good basketball team. That is guaranteed. We know that. This is a team who is in a two-dog race in the Eastern Conference with them and the Milwaukee Bucks. In my view, they're the second-best team in the East. I think Milwaukee is better. This is a team that is going to win a significant amount of games. And even still, you, you just look at this team, right? This all-in um, roster construction based around size, length, and defensive ability just being the biggest the longest, and the best defensive team that you can imagine. And you look at this starting five of Embiid, Horford, Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson, and Ben Simmons. That is so much size, so much defensive ability, that on the defensive side of the ball, I think that it would be a disappointment if this team is not the best defensive team in the NBA this season. I think that should be the expectation going into this year for many is that this is the best defensive team in the NBA. Now, who is the perimeter go-to scorer on this team? That's where the confusion comes in for me is the offensive side of the ball because, you know, I, I know that this defensive ability is so great and this size and this combination of size is so significant, but we watched them in the playoffs take Toronto to seven games. We watched them beat Brooklyn in the first round. Who was the main factor on the offensive side of the ball that got them that got them to where they got? The answer is Jimmy Butler. And Jimmy Butler is no longer on this team. Now, Josh Richardson in there at the two now, they got him in the Butler signing trade. That is someone who can be looked at as a mini-me Jimmy Butler, right? A guy who was relied upon more so last year than before to um, um, to handle the ball, 
Uh, he shot well off catch-and-shoot threes. He's always been a good defender. He's a good two-way wing at the two. But is Josh Richardson someone who can handle such a role that was given to Jimmy Butler last year and he thrived in? You know, I like Josh Richardson, but probably not. So then you look at Tobias Harris. Five years, $180 million, Tobias Harris. A very nice player, a very good player. Not a great player, a very good player. A player who's right below the quality of player an all-star player would be. And based off of his contract and this roster composition, that go-to perimeter scorer relied upon so heavily has to be Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris now has to be, you know, it won't be to the same extent because he's not as good of a player, but in the role of being the number one offensive guy given the ball and having to make shots in big situations on the perimeter, it's Tobias Harris. And it was interesting, too, that Brett Brown said recently in the media luncheon they just had, you know, at the end of the game with Jimmy Butler not there, who's the guy that's going to take that last shot? And he said they're going to put the ball in Embiid's hands at the end of the game. And that raises a very reasonable question of can, and this is something Zach Lowe said also, is that something that you can do? Can you run an offense in the end of a game where you need to get a big bucket to win the game, to tie the game, send it to overtime, whatever? Can you do that through a big man? You know, is it possible to throw the ball down to a big man um, as he faces someone up from 15 feet away or he backs him down and gets into the post and gains position. Is that something that can work? Does Ben Simmons have a jump shot that can factor into their offense this year? There's a lot of questions on the offensive side of the ball. You look at their bench, right? Matisse Tybul and Zaire Smith are their two top um, twos and wings off of the bench for them. And James Ennis also. Zaire Smith and Matisse Tybul are known for not being good three-point shooters. You have Mike Scott who can shoot from deep. James Ennis is okay at shooting from deep. But outside of those two guys, you look at this bench, unless Smith improves or Tybull improves from what they showed in Summer League and are known to be, they're not giving you three-point shooting. Furkan Korkmaz is not really a good three-point shooter. Look at his three-point shooting percentages, and he's not going to get many minutes. Jonah Bolton's not going to get many minutes. So you would have to look at a spark maybe from Trey Burke as a scoring uh, guard off the bench um, in that backup point guard role. I'm not a fan of Shake Milton. Raul Neto, or Howell Neto, excuse me, I don't look at as being much more of an upgrade over TJ McConnell than what TJ McConnell brought you last year. And quite frankly, different point. They made a mistake in not re-signing McConnell using his bird rights and making him a human trade exception, but that's a different story. So for me, the questions arise in this. J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler are gone. Jimmy Butler carried their offense in the playoffs last year. Who's replacing that? Is Tobias Harris capable of being the player to replace that? How good is Josh Richardson going to be? Will Josh Richardson continue to be a very good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter? Does Ben Simmons have a jump shot that can factor into this? I know Al Horford is going to be an incredible benefit to this team on both sides of the ball. Can you run the offense through Embiid with 15 seconds left in the game and you need a big shot to tie the game? Now, maybe all of these questions don't even matter because their defense is so ridiculously good that they don't need to have as good of an offense as they did last year to get by. 
this is going to be an excellent team no matter what. It's just very confusing to visualize and conceptualize what exactly their offensive output is going to be and who it's going to come from. Based on his contract, you'd have to assume that Tobias Harris has to be that number one perimeter offensive option, but I don't think he's that quality of player to handle the load that Butler did last year. So again, tons of questions. Their defense is going to be absurd. Joel Embiid could very well be the defensive player of the year. Al Horford is an elite defensive player as well. Josh Richardson is very good defensively. Ben Simmons is very good defensively. Everyone is very, very big. Everyone is size. This is such a unique team. And their defense probably will supersede their offensive question marks. But just how that offense that they need is created, that is a question for me. Because I, I I'm as I say it right now, I struggle to visualize who the guy you can throw the ball to in a big situation to hit a shot is and where exactly their three-point shooting is going to come from because there aren't a lot of players on the perimeter on this team that provide the skill sets that they lost in J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler. And also, and I, I touched on it a bit, I think their loss of Jimmy Butler, I don't think it's been focused on enough with how they're being discussed for this season. Um, they'll still be a great team, but my number one confusing team just for what their offense will look like, is the Sixers. Now we go to my second most confusing team, the second Eastern Conference team, as I mentioned, and that is the Indiana Pacers. And a lot of this is consistent with what I said in my offseason recap podcasts, but you look at this team from last year to this year, their front court right now is two fives, right? Miles Turner, Demontis Sabonis. Can they play together? I don't think they can. I've said it repeatedly. Demontis Sabonis is coming up for his extension, his rookie contract ending this year. Miles Turner's already locked up um, on that big deal. Thaddeus Young is gone. Let's just move away from that. That's the biggest question mark to me because I don't think there's any way they can play together. A big weakness for me is if you look at the Pacers roster, look at the three. Bojan Bogdanovic is such a massive loss for this team because now, you know, just taking away his ability to be the primary offensive creator when Oladipo is out or to be the number two um, scoring option, just look at what they have now with the three. Jeremy Lamb, Justin Holliday, and Doug McDermott are your best options at the three. And for the time period in which Victor Oladipo is out, no more likely than not, you're going to be playing one of Jeremy Lamb and Justin Holliday at the two and the other at the three. So to me, your best three is Jeremy Lamb, who's really a two. Justin Holliday then and Doug McDermott in there also. So I think that they have a weakness not just in the fact that their front court is two centers, and I don't know how those two play together, but at the three, I think they've obviously have a downgrade in offensive ability. Now, Jeremy Lamb is still solid. He's not Bojan Bogdanovic. And he doesn't have the size that Bojan Bogdanovic has either. So having someone who can be, you know, has the size to guard threes, to kind of be able to guard some tweener types also, they've lost that in losing Bogdanovich, who's a guy who is a clear three, who, who, 
who in a really small lineup could slide down and play a little bit of four, which I'm sure he'll do a little bit with Utah. You now have guys at the three in Lamb and Holiday who are guys who play at the two with good size and can slide down to the three. So they're completely different players. You went from a guy who's a three who can be a bit of a tweener to swingmen. And that's going to lower their ability on the defensive side of the ball in addition to the fact that they're downgrades offensively. Now, of course, you have Malcolm Brogdon in there, and he is a significant upgrade over Darren Collison. But the Bogdanovich loss, I said this in the offseason review podcast, it's a very big loss, especially looking at it. When does Victor Oladipo come back for this team? With Victor Oladipo out, Bogdanovich really stepped up as the primary offensive creator and scorer for this team. Is Jeremy Lamb going to be able to do that in Oladipo's absence? You know, is the perimeter options of Malcolm Brogdon, Jeremy Lamb, and Justin Holiday with two centers? You know, how, how is that going to work offensively? How is that going to look defensively? And then we get back to Sabonis and Turner. Really, to me, it's just a matter of time until Sabonis gets traded. You know, I remember when they drafted Goga Batadze in the draft in the first round, my immediate thought was, all right, here comes the trade for Sabonis. I mentioned it a couple episodes back here on WSOE, the idea of Jalen Brown and Demata Sabonis, a one-for-one trade. It makes sense roster-wise for both teams. It just does. Now, Jalen Brown is obviously a more valuable commodity based off of the type of player um, and position that he plays, but it just makes a lot of sense for both teams, so it's something to watch out for. But let's let's just look at it as, all right, when Turner and Sabonis actually do play at the same time, how is that going to look? You know, are you going to be playing um, Turner in a way where he's floating out on the perimeter and Sabonis is in the paint on the interior? Does Turner more or less become a stretch five just to have the two guys not clog up the lane and get in each other's way? I think, too, also, you look at Miles Turner. He took the leap last year. And even still, I think that there is room for him to grow even more. I like Demata Sabonis a lot. I really do. He's a starting quality player. But I think that I like Turner more, and I think that there's more... Turner has to offer in terms of an upside sense. And I think he's better right now also. So how does the fact that you're playing the two of them together, does that affect that in terms of what Miles Turner can continue to do and if he can take a leap and continue to improve? You also look at this team and you also have to factor in you have Aaron Holiday now getting a real chance to have a big role as the backup point guard on this team. And he's doing it for Malcolm Brogdon, who has had some health concerns in the past. On top of the fact that Victor Oladipo, the guy who has really carried this team and is the best player on this team, could very well be out for 35 games, for 40 games, for 30 games, whatever it may be. So this team also in the period of time in which Oladipo is out, you know, if let's say Brockton is injured during that same time period, you're looking at point guards of Aaron Holiday and TJ McConnell 
with Jeremy Lamb and Justin Holliday as your two and three, McDermott your first three off the bench, two centers, and then off your bench in the front court you have Gogo Batadze and then TJ Warren. That's that's a pretty thin team at that point. So I think I worry a bit for this team and I'm confused as far as how good they'll truly be with Oladipo out, how exactly offensively they'll function with Turner and Sabonis playing together, with Sabonis playing the four and Lamb playing the three, their ability, I think, to defensively be effective against tweeners um, or against stretch fours or against um, athletic threes, I think, is lower than it was before because you had Thaddeus Young and Boyan Bogdanovich, and now you have Demata Sabonis and Jeremy Lamb, both guys who are not playing their ideal positions on the court. You know, Sabonis, you want to be playing at the five, Lamb at the two. So I think it lowers their defensive ability in that area of the lineup. And their offensive ability of what you'll get out of Miles Turner and Sabonis, I think will be lessened by the fact that you're playing them together. And then just really, where does the offense come from with Oladipo out? So I think there's a lot of questions there and a lot of confusion. And quite frankly, I don't think this roster construction makes sense. I think that's something they're going to realize And I think it's really only a matter of time that until Demata Sabonis is the one who is traded and the duo of Turner and Sabonis is no longer forced and not working, even though it's featured in the starting lineup for the team. So the Indiana Pacers there as the second of my five most confusing teams in the league and the last of my two Eastern Conference teams in that grouping. All right. Let's keep moving it forward here on After the Final Whistle. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. And let's move it to the Western Conference for these confusing teams. And the first Western Conference confusing team I want to go to is the Golden State Warriors. This is a very, very confusing team. And the first thing is Golden State in the playoffs. I think that's the first thing we want to look at. Now... I think a lot of people have Golden State pegged as a lock to make the playoffs because even though they lost Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson will miss the whole season or if he does come back, won't be back until March or February or April. I don't think this team is a lock to make the playoffs. Now, you know, if I had to predict the season right now, I would predict them to make the playoffs. But is it a lock? By no means do I look at them as a lock for the playoffs. Let's just look at this roster here, right? Your backcourt right now is Steph Curry and D'Angelo Russell. I think offensively they'll be fine. I think that Russell off the ball, or Curry, Curry we know, is so incredible at moving off the ball and is so, 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 so good. And then on top of the fact that he is so incredibly good with the ball in his hands, I think D'Angelo Russell can be an effective off-ball player as well. You know, if D'Angelo Russell has the ball in his hands with Curry off the ball, and Russell is the player that we saw this past year um, in 2018-19 and in the first half of 2017-2018. If he is that same player with Curry moving off the ball like he does or with Curry having the ball in his hands and Russell playing off the ball, I don't have any worries for Curry and Russell on the offensive side of the ball. Now, on the defensive side of the ball, That's a completely different story. Now, you can say that that would be alleviated by the fact that you have 
Draymond Green anchoring the defense. But look who you're going to be starting at the three, right? When you look at this starting lineup, you're going to have Curry and Russell as your backcourt, uh, Draymond Green and Kevon Looney in the frontcourt. So then who is your three? You look at this team, the starting three for the Warriors is going to be either Alec Burks. Uh, there's three options. Alec Burks, Alfonso McKinney, or Glenn Robinson. Now, I like Alec Burks if he was my eighth or ninth man on my bench as my starter. That's not great. Alfonso McKinney was a nice little story. The Warriors found him and he was a good, effective bench piece for them. In a starting role, Glenn Robinson in a starting role, these guys are all at the minimum because Golden State was hard-capped and so close to the apron at which they were hard-capped so they didn't have a lot of room to operate. That That's a very deficient level of talent in comparison to the rest of that team at the three. And that's going to be a liability for this team. So I think Curry and Russell defensively, you know, you have two guys who are smaller, um, two guys who are really not the best defensively, even against, you know, guys playing their normal positions of the one. So I think defensively, they're going to struggle in the backcourt. And to an extent, that'll be alleviated by Draymond Green, but not to the greatest extent because at the three, you're not playing Clay Thompson, you know, down at the th- down at the three instead of the two. You're playing Alec Burks, Glenn Robinson, or Alfonso McKinney. And you look at the rest of this team, this team is just so thin in terms of the depth of quality players available to them. At that lineup, as I mentioned, Looney Green, let's put Alec Burks in there. Kevon Looney, Draymond Green, Alec Burks, D'Angelo Russell, Steph Curry. Willie Cauley-Stein is your first big off the bench. I like Willie Cauley-Stein a lot more than most. Uh, But that's a guy who, there's questions about motor, there's questions about consistency. Jordan Poole, they picked him at the end of the first round this year. I thought that was a reach. Jacob Evans has not shown anything. Omari Spellman was the 30th pick in the draft in 2018, and Atlanta traded him to Golden State uh, for a 2026 second-round pick um, because, one, it helped Golden State with the hard cap and the apron, but Atlanta was just done with him after one year and gave him up for a second-round pick ways into the future. And he struggled with being able to stay in shape. The aforementioned Glenn Robinson and Alfonso McKinney. And then you're going to have to rely upon your second round picks in Eric Paschal and Alan Smaligich. Excuse me there. This team does not have depth. This team is very thin and gets very thin very quickly. You know, are you going to play Steph Curry, Draymond Green, D'Angelo Russell? D'Angelo Russell, who I think is going to be traded before the season ends, If I had to bet one way or the other, I think he's off to Minnesota for a package centered around Robert Covington before the trade deadline. And if not before the trade deadline, then right after the season ends. But this team, again, you have dynamic offense in the the backcourt there with Curry and Russell. They're going to struggle on the defensive side of the ball. Your options at the three are nice, lower-tier bench players around... You know, in Glenn Robinson's case, you'd like to measure, you know, like a ninth or tenth man. Alec Burks is like an eighth or a ninth man. Alfonso McKinney was like the ninth man on this Golden State team. 
Those are your options to start there at the three. Alan Smalagic, they really, really liked, but he's a rookie picked in the second round. Eric Paschal, same thing. And Willie Cauley-Stein, who I like, as I said, there's consistency issues. Jordan Poole and Jacob Evans, who are going to have roles on this team as bench options um, at the two and and at the wing, these are guys in Evans who didn't show anything as a rookie and Poole, who was projected to be a mid-second round pick, who they picked at the end of the first round. These are guys who are going to have to have roles on this team based off of how thin their depth is. So I worry for them and am confused in the sense of when Curry is not on the court, you know, you're going to probably have to get into a situation in which Curry or Russell is on the court at all times. Because otherwise, where is the offensive creation coming from at a sufficient level? There's not a lot of depth here. The three options are very weak. The backcourt is going to struggle defensively. And look, maybe the fact that Steph Curry is going to absolutely ball out this year and be in the very top tier of the conversation for the MVP, in my opinion, with the fact that Draymond Green is a basketball genius and with the fact that D'Angelo Russell was an all-star last year and he can replicate that again this year, maybe their lack of depth doesn't really matter all that much and they slide right in there as the seventh seed in the West. But to me, I'm just concerned and confused by where the production comes outside of those three players. The bench, they're just not going to get much production with how thin this team is. And I don't think that the roster is constructed in a way that optimizes um, their offensive output, or not, excuse me, their defensive output and overall team success. Because... You really look at this team, you have those three stars, and you have Kevon Looney, and then you have a bunch of lower-tier minimum free agents and a bunch of second-round pick-quality players. Willie Cauley-Stein is your first guy off the bench for this team. Willie Cauley-Stein is the sixth man for this team. It's not great. So I'm just confused by, you know, how significant that drop-off is How much does that affect how good of a team they are, how many games they win, what seed they are going into the playoffs? And I'm also just confused as to when Curry's not on the court, and let's say Russell's not on the court also, how are they scoring? So lots of questions for me with this Golden State team. And then you add in the fact with their uh, first-round pick going to Brooklyn, unless it's in the top 20, it's just a nice little interesting wrinkle there. But this team is really confusing to me. One thing that is not confusing to me, I expect Steph Curry to have a monstrous, monstrous season statistically. And I think he will finish the year in the top three for MVP voting. But it's a weird team without any depth. And there's a lot of confusion on my end as to how good they can truly be because of that lack of depth. So that is the third of my five most confusing teams in the league. Let's go to the second Western Conference team, the Houston Rockets. And really, the confusion stems here from Russell Westbrook and James Harden playing together. Two guys 
who dominate the ball, who have such incredibly high usage rates, who are, especially in the case of Russell Westbrook, effective when they have the ball in their hands. James Harden, an MVP-level player, year in and year out, perhaps the best isolation player in the history of basketball. We want to talk about guys who have the ball in their hands, need the ball in their hands to be as effective as they can be. I talked about this when I talked about the trade in the podcast episode about the Russell Westbrook trade. I talked about this in the Western Conference recap podcast where I talked about the Houston Rockets. The optimal situation in which you maximize Russell Westbrook's output for this team is you put the ball in Russell Westbrook's hands and you have James Harden, Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker, and Clint Capella, or you go super small and you have P.J. Tucker, Gerald Green, Eric Gordon, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook, you put the ball in Westbrook's hands and you surround him with just guys who can shoot the ball. But in doing so, you're taking the ball out of James Harden's hands. And is that really something you want to do? No, it's not. Now, I'm sure they're going to stagger their minutes, similarly to how it was done with, um, with Harden and Chris Paul when they were on the team for the last two years. So they'll definitely be staggered. But just the combination of those two, because come playoff time or come pivotal, pivotal matchups, when the ball is in James Harden's hands, teams are going to sag off of Russell Westbrook like crazy. That's going to limit the space that James Harden has to operate. That's going to limit the effectiveness with which James Harden can operate offensively in comparison to these last couple of seasons. And so the fit between Westbrook and Harden, I know they really wanted to play with each other. And I know they're confident in their ability to succeed at a very high level playing together. But the fit is so confusing to me, especially in the fact of how do teams play against them in the playoffs? How much do they respect Westbrook defensively when the ball is in James Harden's hands? And if you look at the rest of this team, you know, we know that this team does not want to pay the tax. Now, the Nene contract I talked about in a couple episodes back, you know, ultimately got changed to the point where Houston will not be able to use Nene trading his contract out as $10 million in salary. So, and now Nene has a uh, chronic adductor injury. So to me, I would suspect Nene is off of this team so that they avoid the tax um, before he plays 10 games. But you look at this team, this team is not really all that deep because they're not willing to pay the tax. Uh, they have an easy made option to trade for Andre Godala. They could use Amon Shumper as a human trade exception. They're not doing it. They have multiple trade exceptions available to them um, in Brandon Knight and Marquise Chris at just over $3 million. Lots of other smaller ones also. But you look at this team. Let's just look at their bench. So we have our starting five, right? Westbrook, Harden, Gordon, Tucker, Capella. Off your bench right there. Daniel House, he had nice moments with them last year. Austin Rivers, who came back at a low figure. Gerald Green, who I mentioned. Tyson Chandler. Tabo Cephalosha. Ryan Anderson, who's on a very largely partial guaranteed one-year deal. Isaiah Hartenstein. Gary Clark. Ben McLemore is probably the casualty here with his non-guaranteed contract. But the point here, and you can get this point as I go through these names, 
The depth is not there. The uh, perimeter options are not there. And this is going to be a very tight rotation. We know that Mike D'Antoni plays his guys significant minutes. We know he's going to stagger Russell Westbrook and James Harden. But when push comes to shove and they are in big games or playoff games or big time situations, Russell Westbrook and James Harden are both going to be on the court. And to me, I don't see a way in which you can maximize both of them offensively when they're playing together because they're both so dependent on the ball being in their hands. Westbrook is just such a low um, quality three-point shooter. And the best way to maximize Westbrook takes a ball out of James Harden's hands, which you should never want to do. So I'm confused with this team as as far as really just look at Russell Westbrook and James Harden, and when they play together, how do you most effectively produce offensively? So, you know, if I looked at the West right now, I think the Clippers are better than them, the Nuggets are better than them, the Lakers and the Jazz are better than them. Now, I think the Rockets are still a very good team and are going to be a very good team this season, are going to be a very good team going into the playoffs. But come playoff time, I worry about this team. And coming into the season, I'm very confused, hence their fourth ranking in my most confusing teams or top five confusing teams coming into the season because the two top guys on this team don't seem to have a way that they can coexist together. They're going to have to. So figuring that out to me is very confusing. And therefore Houston is the fourth of my five most confusing teams coming into this year. Now, before I mention the fifth and final team on my top five most confusing teams coming into the year, Let's just go through some honorable mentions real quick. So the first honorable mention is the Orlando Magic, who, as I mentioned in the offseason podcast, went all in on this eight seed team um, who everyone is super long and they want to have the longest low quality shooting team possible. Where does the offense come with this team? Where is the guy who can be a knockdown perimeter scorer come on this team? How good is Jonathan Isaac going to be? Is he going to take the leap? Is Aaron Gordon going to get to that higher gear that lots of people think he has? I'm not as crazy about Aaron, Aaron Gordon as other people, but it's probably true that he has another level to get to. Can he get to that level? Can Jonathan Isaac take the leap? Is Markel Fultz a factor? I'm not holding my breath on that. Is Terrence Ross going to replicate the career year that he had last year? How does Al Camino fit into this team, where they have plenty of players who play the same position and style as him? Does Mo Bamba play over Ken Birch? How do they maximize the development of Mo Bamba, or is it a sunk cost? There's lots of questions here, and I don't think this team is really that good offensively, and so it's confusing as to how good they can be Um, this year, and if them making the playoffs again is replicable, and if they are a better team than the eight-seed team that they were last year. Frankly, I think they're the eight-seed again this year. I'm really not that crazy about them at all. Um, Actually, I think they're the nine-seed. I take that back. 
I would have Detroit ahead of them. So I don't even think they're a playoff team, and it's confusing to me as to what exactly is the offensive image of this team. Uh, so that's an honorable mention there. Um, the Chicago Bulls, and this is more in a curious sense, not in a negative sense, but they have a lot of nice pieces there. Um how do all those pieces fit together? How do all those pieces coexist? How does it come together this year on the defensive and offensive side of the ball? That's not a negative. That's just more of a curious, um, confusing team. And then the last honorable mention here, I guess would have to be the Miami Heat. You have Jimmy Butler in there. He fits everything that they strive to be culturally in terms of how he plays, in terms of his attitude and his demeanor. Um but who, who's the guy who's playing at the one? You know, is Drew, Goran Dragic coming off of the bench? Is Justice Winslow going to operate more or less as a de facto one? Are they going to trade for Chris Paul? You know, is Kelly Olynyk going to start? Is James Johnson going to start? Um, how much of a role does Tyler Harrow have? He should have a pretty significant role. He had a really good summer league, and they picked him high in the draft. Um, does Bam improve even more? I like Bam. Does Bam continue to get better this year? Um, how effective can Dion Waiters be for them? Uh, does Myers Leonard get time at the four? Um, are they going to have enough floor spacing if they don't play a Linux or Leonard at the four next to Bam Adebayo? Um, so there's a lot of questions here with that Miami team. I think they're good. I think they'll be the sixth seed in the East or the seventh seed in the East, excuse me. But there's just questions there as far as the pieces that are there and how they maximize their team overall. So, Without delaying it here, let's just get into the fifth of my top five most confusing teams. The last one, the third Western Conference team, and that is the Dallas Mavericks. Luka Doncic, Kristaps Porzingis. I think the two of them are going to be fantastic together. I think if Porzingis is the player that he was before injury, especially in that last year um, in which he actually suffered the injury, then the two of them are going to be just ridiculous together. And the problem with this Dallas team and why they're confusing is you get so many different opinions that vary widely as far as how good they are. You'll have people saying that they're a playoff team and a lock to get a seven or eight seed. You have people that are very high on them. You have people like me who think they're the 11th best team in the West and aren't going to make the playoffs and really aren't close to a playoff team. And if you look at the roster composition of this team, I look at this team, there's a lot of nice individual parts on this team, but those individual parts are best off as high-quality bench players. DeLon Wright is probably starting alongside of Seth Curry in their backcourt. And you're probably looking at a starting five of DeLon Wright, Seth Curry, um, Doncic, Porzingis, and Dwight Powell. DeLon Wright, I like a lot. He is best, your, your team is best suited if he is your seventh man. Seth Curry, again, is best suited to be a high-quality bench player. Dwight Powell, a fringe starter type, but again, you're probably best off if he's a high-quality bench player. Maxi Kleba, I like him a lot, but what are you best off as, or is your team best off as, if he is a high-quality bench player? Boban, again, lower quality, but still a bench piece. Dorian Finney-Smith, who I like, a bench piece. 
Justin Jackson, who I like, a bench piece. Tim Hardaway Jr., a fringe starter type who, again, is probably best off as a high-quality wing who can score off the bench. And then you have Courtney Lee as well. So, really, if I look at this Mavericks team, the only two players on this team who I immediately recognize as starting quality players are Doncic and Porzingis, who are stars, absolute stars. Um, In Doncic, you have one of the 20 best players in the league, and before he comes back and proves it, you probably have to put Porzingis in the 25 to 30 range, and if he comes back and is the same player as before, perhaps better, then he gets bumped up. But you take away that star duo, there is not a player on this team who you can look at and immediately conclude that they are a starting quality player. And I don't really get the sense that this is going to be, especially in a very competitive West, you know, the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Jazz, the Lakers, the Rockets, Portland, um, New Orleans, Golden State, who I just talked about, Sacramento, who added a lot of depth, San Antonio, who's still a solid team, who has a nice combination of vets and young players. That's 10 teams right there. I think Dallas is better than Minnesota, and I think Oklahoma City will trade off uh, Gallinari and will try to trade off Chris Paul as the season goes on, and they'll end up finishing worse than Dallas. But I don't see any way that Dallas is better than those aforementioned 10 teams. And it's just very interesting because, you know, DeLon Wright, that's a guy who can play three positions, can defend well, um, who probably needs to improve on his three-point shooting, um, can handle the ball and can play off the ball. That's a valuable player to have. Seth Curry is a scoring combo guard who can handle the ball, play off the ball, and shoot well from three. You know, you go down the line. Dwight Powell is a nice five uh, who can rebound and play defense. These are nice pieces, but outside of this incredibly top-heavy star duo of Doncic and Porzingis, who will complement each other so well with Doncic's ability to create offense for himself and others at an elite level, who has such a great feel for the game, and Porzingis, who can shoot the ball from three, can put the ball on the floor and drive towards the rim, can go downhill, or with his incredible size, can just be a force in, on the interior. They're going to be an incredible duo, but I don't think they have the pieces around them to truly accentuate um, and emphasize just how good the two of them are. And I think it's just confusing to me as far as the fact that there's so many varying opinions across the board as to how good the Mavericks are. Person X, you'll have saying that they're a lock for an eight seed in the West. You'll have someone say they're a fringe team around the ninth or eighth seed in the West. You'll have people like me who think they're the clear 11th team in the West. Lots of varying opinions. A weird team with nice individual parts that as a whole are probably a nice bench with two stars. And I don't think that's conducive to success, um, especially in a loaded West. So they're a confusing team to me because I think the jury is out on lots of different people as far as how good they are um, and how all of those nice individual high-quality bench pieces mix with that incredible star duo they have. And with that, that is my top five most confusing teams episode of After the Final Whistle here on Friday, September 27th. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear, of After the Final Whistle. NBA season coming up in a few weeks. Be sure to be checking back here on WSOE 
every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. or after the fact on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts for more episodes. Shout out to the NBA coming soon. Shout out to you, the listener. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night.